Hey everybody, welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. As listeners undoubtedly know, amidst the ongoing social justice actions following the horrendous killing of George Floyd, but also numerous other black men and women over the years, many of whom have yet to receive the justice they deserve. Many legislatures around the country have moved to issue statements declaring racism itself to be a public health emergency. Today's guest is Democratic Minority Leader, State Representative Amelia Sykes of Akron, who, along with her colleagues, have drafted a resolution declaring racism a statewide public health crisis here in Ohio. When I heard that the Democratic Caucus was moving to declare racism a public health emergency here in Ohio, I knew right away that I wanted to talk with Representative Amelia Sykes, not only because she's a Democratic leader in the Ohio House, but because she's a lawyer trained in public health as well, and with a long track record of working on important public health issues in our state. In many ways, these declarations are being issued at a time when there's a convergence of disparity, not only in the use of lethal force by police against black Americans, but in housing, environmental and educational policy as well, and of course in healthcare. While the Black Lives Matter movement was re-energized by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis on Memorial Day weekend, we had in the previous months already been witnessing tremendous racial and ethnic disparity in the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, not only in terms of who got the virus and who died from it, but also in the fact that our hasty reopening of the state's social and economic activity disproportionately required that black and brown Ohioans put themselves in harm's way. Yet, while we've seen quite a bit of organizing and coming together across Ohio, I mean, hundreds of my neighbors turned out for a march this past weekend in Grandview, certainly no stronghold of racial diversity. We've also seen a lot of evidence that there's a lot more work to do to drive home the seriousness of this problem of violence against people of color. Over the past week, I've spoken with the leaders of several groups and institutions who took the step of declaring unequivocally that Black Lives Matter, only to get pushback from their boards and their constituents. Even regarding the resolution declaring racism a public health crisis here in Ohio, there is, as we'll hear, currently no bipartisan support. And many businesses and institutions still regard the simple, clear declaration that Black Lives Matter too controversial. Obviously, we've got a lot of work to do, and now that people have showed up in our state, the hard work begins. And this means changing not only our policies, but also our representation. This truly is a time to pick a side in one of the great civil rights moments in our country's history. Here at Prognosis Ohio, we ask you to please choose well. As always, before turning to my conversation with Leader Sykes, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to Prognosis Ohio wherever you get your podcasts and consider following us on Twitter and Instagram and friending us on Facebook. Also, if you have ideas for show themes or interviews, please don't hesitate to email us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Also, as you may know, we have a Patreon account. Please consider becoming a patron and contributing a few bucks so we can continue to grow the show, spotlighting important health and healthcare issues here in the great state of Ohio. While you're there, tell us what issues you'd like us to address or who you'd like to see on the show. Visit patreon.com slash prognosisohio to chip in $3 a month and become a Prognosis Ohio Patreon. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And thanks. Born and raised in Akron, House Democratic leader Amelia Strong Sykes was elected to represent her hometown in November 2014. Representative Sykes serves as a Democratic leader of the House Minority Caucus, a position to which she was elected by her colleagues. 
Representative Sykes' legislative accomplishments are numerous, and we'll be linking to her longer profile in the show notes. But I want to mention, for purposes for our show focused on health and healthcare, that Representative Sykes, who earned both a JD and a Master's of Public Health degree from the University of Florida, has worked closely for many years with healthcare professionals and colleagues to broadly improve public health, increase access to care, and especially to combat Ohio's high infant mortality rate. Her passion for social justice extends to issues such as voter rights, criminal justice reform, and creating a more efficient social safety net for struggling Ohioans. Ohio House Minority Leader and State Representative Amelia Sykes, thanks so much for joining us on Prognosis Ohio. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on. And there's a lot going on right now. Um, I know you're super busy, involved in all sorts of really important uh, initiatives, and um, really appreciate you being able to carve some time out um, uh, at this time. And I guess I'll just start with the one of the big questions here, which is, you know, by now all of our listeners know, I mean, they better know, <laughs> that racism is a scourge in our society and has been for centuries. One major initiative you're involved with at this time is the introduction of a resolution to declare racism a public health crisis. I wonder if we could just start by explaining for our listeners why public health is a useful frame for thinking about what racism does to our society, and maybe a little bit about what this resolution aims to do. Thank you for the question, and I really appreciate the frame of that question because uh, as someone who has been deeply engaged and uh, formally trained in public health, uh, you know that the goal is to find um, the interventions or policies uh, to help as many people as possible. And you also want to make sure that you are working from as close to the root to address those issues. Um, and we all talk about the downstream issue and the story about the person pulling people out of the lake. And then yeah. finally recognizing that we maybe need to put a bridge up so people stop falling into the lake so you don't have to catch them out or pull them out. And so when I talk about, and when I'm thinking about racism as a public health crisis, it is getting to that root cause of the issue uh, and addressing the issue that causes so much hurt, ailment, sickness, and lack of wellness within communities. And we do a lot of things to address health disparities, um, uh, disproportionate rates of certain types of disease states. Uh, But when you look at the root cause of these things, um, it is often overwhelmingly uh, due to policies based on race. Uh, When we look at that, we're talking about things like uh, inequitable access to food and the lack of investment in certain communities, unequal educational policies, redlining, um, job opportunities uh, that are lacking for people of color. And the root of the disparity is racism. It is racist-based. So if we want to address these issues, we have to go all the way to the root, do the uncomfortable work, um, address the problem so that we won't be eating from poisonous fruit. It's my other um, capacity as a lawyer. We always talk about eating the fruit of a poisonous tree. We have a poison tree here, um, and we're shocked that people are getting sick from eating its fruit. And so now we have to address the root of the issue, perhaps the soil, the water sources. And what we're seeing is uh, racism is there and very much intertwined. And once we start to dismantle uh, the thought process behind it, uh, we can get some better outcomes. You know, you keep using the word root. And I just want to add, you know, as a, a somebody trained in political theory, when you, when you study so-called radical politics, people often don't know that, you know, 
uh, radishes, radicchio. These, this is about radical. It's a root and radical uh, behavior is is like kind of historically linked. You got to pull things out from the bottom at the source. And you know, it's one of the things in public health that, that we're trying to do. It is. And it's hard work. Um, it's very challenging work. And I do like the symbolism and the imagery of a tree because uh, what people like to see is uh, the leaves and the fruit. And uh, we always talk about working and addressing, especially as policymakers, where, where there's a hesitation to do anything that rocks the boat too much. We tend to grasp the low hanging fruit, the easy things uh, to say that we've created a victory and we've been responsive. But those victories, while are important and should not be degraded as uh, as anything else, don't truly get us to fixing the problem. And so as policymakers, and especially as legislators, we should want and desire to address the root causes and the source of these problems so that we don't have to continue uh, to allocate resources to fixing the same thing over and over and over again. It is in by definition, insanity um, and a complete and total waste of uh, taxpayer funds and resources. And so it would seem as though even the most conservative uh, policymakers would want to address these root causes, the sources of these issues, so we could stop wasting money on uh, these interventions that are only skimming the surface. However, we continue uh, to go down this cycle where nothing ever really truly gets fixed. And that's why this resolution is so important, even in just its name of recognizing that there is a problem, that this is the problem, and this is how we're going to address it. You can't fix a problem if you're not willing to address it. Um, and that's the other part of why this resolution is so important. So let's turn to the resolution itself. So identical versions, my understanding is they're making their way through both the House and the Senate, and they call for commitments to you know, 11 actions, including education to address and dismantle racism, promoting and encouraging policies that prioritize the health of people of color, and securing the resources that we need to do this. We're going to be sharing the details about those actions and the resolution on social media and in our show notes. But you know, too often, I guess, is one of my fear, and I, I'm sure a lot of people's fear, uh, too often statements like these can be symbolic. So how do you see this this declaration as paving the way for concrete change? Like, for example, opening the door for resources and really uh, transforming. And we're at this moment where I, there seems to be a sense out there, I've been out in Columbus and elsewhere, that maybe this moment's different. How do you want people to understand the, the teeth that this resolution can have? And that's a great question. And one we hear about all the time and are criticized a lot about with resolutions uh, because they aren't as um, sometimes not as uh, meaningful uh, as a direct allocation or a constitutional amendment. But nonetheless, it has a place and it certainly has a place in this discussion today. Uh, And as I said before, the first thing you have to do in order to fix a problem is recognize that there is a problem. And so once we get people on board, recognizing that in fact, the real reason why we have so much uh, disparity is because of racism and we get people to acknowledge it will be a monumental task. And it is uh, one of the biggest things that we have to do. And even as you talk to people about the civil unrest and the demonstrations and protests now, people are starting to say it feels different. And it's because people are starting to truly understand what is happening 
calling it what it is and being prepared to address it. So just raising that level of consciousness is an incredible way to start the conversation, even if there aren't penalties behind it, which is what we're used to saying. If you don't do it, here's the penalty. That's how we're used to working. Uh, We don't need that frame here. And the other part about this is uh, the resolution has several different uh, policies and, and interventions that cause the people who are making decisions to look at the decisions that they're making in a different lens. And so I'm going to put my lawyer hat back on. And, you know, we look at things uh, on the four corners of the paper. We always talk about the four corners of the law, and it is the black and white what do the words say? But what this resolution would do is say, well, I'm looking at the four corners. I'm looking at these words in black ink on this white paper. And it says one thing, but what is the actual impact when we start to enforce these and implement these laws? Is there a disparate impact uh, that is happening to certain communities? Was that intended? Was it not intended? And so once you get people to recognize that things aren't as clear as they seem when you write them down or you type them up, then when we get legislation, we'll say, wait a minute, let me ask the question. How does this impact that community? How does it impact this community uh, compared to others? And are we unintentionally or intentionally creating disparities in the words that we're writing to be enforced throughout this state? And so those systemic changes are much better than any criminal penalty we could put in there because we're just changing the way people think through legislating and policy making and it feels a little pie in the sky um, and that is definitely uh, a lot of public health is that touchy feely mm-hmm. and warm and gooey we can change the world uh, but let me tell you as a legislator who is both a, a trained in public health and a trained lawyer you need that Uh, I know how lawyers think, and they don't think through some of these types of outcomes all the time, or even policymakers. But when you force people to stop and do that, uh, things can be different. And so we're talking about systemic institutional level changes. And it's not just going to be an allocation here or an allocation there, a penalty here, a requirement there. It has to be, again, root cause, hard work, changing the way we think and approach the work that we do. Prognosis Ohio listeners know that we try to shine some light on good work being done to promote health around our state. Considering the focus of this week's show and our guest's hometown of Akron, Ohio, we'd love it if you'd go to visit the Akron NAACP at naacpakron.org. Read about the organization's history as well as the important work it does, especially these days in ensuring the integrity of elections and access to the vote. But also important initiatives in education, health, and other areas where equity and justice are at stake. Visit naacpakron.org to learn about and consider making a donation. That's www.naacpakron.org. Or just go to the link in our show notes at wcbe.org and you can connect there. And thanks. You know, one of the things that I always emphasize with the students I work with at Ohio University is that health policy can be deceiving if you think of health narrowly. You know, we need to think about environmental policy and environmental racism. We need to think about policing and the psychological effects of racism as as a health issue, but also just as an expansive social issue. And I don't know if you agree, if, if I'm, you know, talk about pie in the sky, I'm very hopeful right now that we're having new kinds of conversations about these issues that have been around for a long time. But do you see that kind of expansiveness happening or are we going to uh, kind of 
focus back in on that narrow view of health. And, and, and maybe that's one of the things we need to work actively to make sure it doesn't happen. Well, it, Dan, one of the reasons why I found myself in the legislature, uh, because I was often as a student of public health, very frustrated with hearing my uh, professors and classmates talk about how uh, we had all this great information, but still nothing was changing. And it was um, this unwillingness to engage in the arena because I don't know if people felt it was beneath them or they were intimidated by it. But nonetheless, when there are large sums of money being allocated towards one issue or another, uh, sweeping policy changes, you, people have to get involved. And the other part is, and I always try to avail myself to student groups particularly um, in encouraging them not to be afraid because, in fact, you are experts on this topic. Uh, legislators are jacks of all trades, and that is just the nature of it. One day we're dealing with tax law, the next day um, something related to criminal justice or a probate issue, and then we're back to agriculture. And you, if you don't have your own sense of uh, base knowledge, you just don't have it. And so that's where the advocates and the lobbyists come in because they have to educate us on these topics in which we don't know. Um, You know, I told a story to a group not too long ago. I said, well, how many of you all think that legislators read the American Journal of Public Health? And I saw a few hands go up and I said, you are absolutely wrong. And let me tell you, I am the only member of the legislature who is a member of the American Public Health Association and I don't read my journal. So you have zero legislators who are reading this research. And unless you come tell us it's important, we don't know. And it's so necessary for people not to get caught up in being intimidated or that or fearful of the process, because unless someone tells a legislator that this is an important issue, it does not make it on their radar. And we cannot assume uh, that just because it's good work, it's important work that people just happen to know. Because let me tell you, I've been doing this job for um, six years as a legislator and very much engaged in the process prior to, we don't. And you have to tell us and you have to engage. And it is so important for the public health community uh, to start to step up and engage in these conversations. Because right now there are only two people in the legislature who are formally trained in public health. We have one more member who's going to get her degree at the end of the year. There's 132 of us. I was the first and I was in 2015. So uh, think about how long the state of Ohio has been a state 1803. And I'm the first legislator. And how many years that was until 2014. So we got a lot of work to do to educate people. Um, and we, I've been trying to bring as many people along, but I need some help in doing it. And so do my other colleagues who care about this subject as well. Yeah. And I'll just take this opportunity to say, you know, I've been, I think my students are tired of me telling them that their legislators actually want to hear from them. They don't believe it. Um, So you've heard it here first, uh, folks, if you're, you know, students or um, health professionals working in academia and elsewhere that we, you know, the folks want to hear from you at the state house. Absolutely. And And also to my medical students, go get your MPH because we need that too. Yes, please. So I wonder if we could talk about just briefly these two moments. We have, you know, mass protests in response to the killing of African-Americans um, and George Floyd um, being one of the like key moments in bringing that consciousness out. But we also have the COVID-19 pandemic you know, has disproportionately impacted African-Americans and other people of color. How do you see these two moments converging right now? Or is, is this moment related to those two things happening at once 
like how do you um, credit or how do you think about the kind of convergence of these forces that are raising so much consciousness? So for the people who are on the receiving end of racism, uh, these things have never gone away and they are always connected and always will be interconnected. And what we're seeing, I think, is a consciousness, a raising of consciousness for people who are not um, experiencing racism in any form and, in fact, are probably benefiting from it. And what we have are, and I've talked about it in this way, two viruses that are completely ravaging our communities. And the first is the coronavirus. And the second is racism. But racism has been around for the 400 years and since uh, we first saw uh, the first enslaved people brought to this country. And so we've been dealing with the the sin and the uh, detriment of racism for much longer than the coronavirus, which is a novel virus, but its impacts are De- more deadly than the coronavirus. And we're seeing that in uh, the disparate impact of life expectancy amongst Black people and the incidence of uh, diseases, the ability to you know not fully realize the American dream because of uh, redlining and food deserts and unequal educational opportunities and uh, economic inequality. All of these things have been around for 400 plus years and have been killing Black people. We see it in infant mortality and maternal mortality. It is there. The coronavirus is new, but we can see the coronavirus and we're experiencing those disparities in real time, uh, which could have created an opportunity for us for the first time ever to intervene and limit and minimize the amount of disparate impact. Uh, But unfortunately, across the country, including in Ohio, the leaders just refused to do it because it just wasn't important. I mean, I'm just, I have to make it plain. If it was important enough to do, they would have done it, but it wasn't. And so that is a byproduct of racism. And so as we see racism continues to kill people and all of these other things, folks are willing to expose themselves to the coronavirus because they know racism is far more deadly. Yeah, it's interesting. The the risk that people are taking and going out is, is testament to how much they care about it. But also just that some things are worth fighting for. It's this is different than people, you know, going to pool parties and playing cornhole. Like this is this is these are people showing up for social justice and to protect the lives of others. Absolutely, and I, and I do hope as people see the protests, they they don't feel that the, the protests of people who wanted to reopen the state so they could be served by uh, minimum wage workers at restaurants and nail salons is not the same as someone saying, "I want to be able to live," and I want you to see me as a human. And they shouldn't be, and we should not conflate those issues or confuse them as similar because they are not. And quite frankly, we are seeing people who are taking to the streets, um, exposing themselves potentially to a deadly and novel virus um, because they feel like their likelihood of dying of other forms of racism, police brutality, and other things is much higher than it is the coronavirus. And, And I hope that people can see that and they get that and can appreciate the risk that folks are taking so that they can be heard, uh, just so they can experience a life expectancy that's similar to their white friends and uh, and colleagues. And and that's big, that's that's really, really impactful. And I hope uh, that that is being relayed through uh, people's willingness to be out and about and protest in such large numbers. Just my last question, if I can. And, you know, we're, we're living in a time where those committed to racial justice are hoping that 
as we've talked about, you know, maybe we're turning something of a corner. We don't want to oversell that. We want to be cautious, but we also want to be hopeful, you know, and, and harness this moment. I guess I want to end with a really broad question, which is, you know, are you optimistic? Are you cautiously optimistic? Or is there a different kind of frame here? And and I guess I'll just punctuate that with one question, which is, do you think this is going to get bipartisan support, this resolution? Um, or how, how is that conversation happening? So I am cautiously optimistic. And I don't ever want to lose hope um, in figuring these solutions out because the enemy would have won. And so I am unwilling to allow them to uh, take me to that point in which I no longer have hope. But I'm also a realist. Um, and I've seen that there are people who are unwilling uh, to have this conversation in a sincere way. But those are the people who I will leave alone and they'll just be on the wrong side of history. Mm-hmm. There have been people who are open to the conversation, who are willing to do it, um, who are willing to be uncomfortable, uh, to empathize uh, and be compassionate with the the challenges that Black people and other ethnic minorities have had in this country and in this state. And so those are the people who I'm focusing on. Uh, the others, we will leave them where they are, and hopefully they catch on the bandwagon before it's too late. But if they don't, they can stay, they can remain where they are. But focusing on those who are willing to listen and have the dialogue and do the work is where I'm going to focus my attention. Uh, in the House, so far, we have no Republican support. We have not had any commitment for a hearing. And that lets me know that the leaders of the Ohio House of Representatives are unwilling to listen to the needs of Black, Brown, uh, Hispanic and Asian, and as well as Native people, they are just unwilling, and that should tell people something. Why are you just? Why are you unwilling to hear us at all? And and that should that should make you wonder and curious. Uh, and you don't have to necessarily agree with everything, but unwilling to have the conversation says a lot. It is the silence is deafening. Time to pick a side. Time to pick a side, and they've picked their side. There is no neutrality when it comes to social justice issues. And so the Senate has been a little bit more willing to take up the issue. There is a committee hearing coming up soon where people can come and talk and express. I've talked to the committee chair. He's willing to do it. Uh, He has recognized that there are things that he doesn't understand but wants to have the conversation. So we will work uh, with those who are willing to work with us uh, to lift up these conversations and hopefully people and the protesters keep up the energy. Uh, There is a tactic that is being used. I mean, it happens every single time there is a major crisis that they just wait us out. They just wait for us to become weary and to give up and move on to the next issue. Don't let that happen. It happens every time. We see it every time. This is what's happening right now. Uh, So now that we know that what their tricks are, we can be better prepared to address them. Waiting the protests, waiting the consciousness out is a a long-tested strategy. Uh, It's worked too many times, and we really do hope that this moment's different. And I know that from the people I see, from the students I I talk with, they they are looking at this as a defining moment of their time. And, you know, let's let's hope so. And I, I just appreciate you pushing the issue. I appreciate your colleagues working with you on it. And we're going to do what we can here to continue to you know, spotlight it. Leader Sykes, I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to be on Prognosis Ohio. Um, you know, I just wish you and, and um, your family and um, your colleagues well. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Look forward to listening to more of segments of your podcast. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner and Mark France. 
You can find show notes for this episode on WCBE's webpage at wcbe.org. It's under the podcast experience tab. Please take a minute also to subscribe to Prognosis Ohio, follow us on Twitter at, at @prognosisohio, and friend us on Facebook. As always, we encourage you to email us your suggestions and your feedback at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening and be well.